0: Well some excitement was added to the Magnuson household this week with some news that was in our Minneapolis papers and across the the uh, Minneapolis television and radio stations. It was the news that a cougar had been spotted in the Lowry Hill neighborhood, not far from here. You can actually go online and see it's really just odd picture. It's one of those typical Minneapolis garages, probably a, you know, a separate garage, and suddenly it picks up a large cougar just walking in front of the garage in a city neighborhood. You can imagine it caused a little bit of consternation among the Lowry Hill residents. You can also imagine it caused even more consternation among my young children. The thought of a cougar on the loose, on the prowl, somewhere around. It was very intimidating to my children. It did not even matter too much that I informed them. Kids, it also came across the news that a dead cougar was found on 394, um, about a day later. And it seems pretty certain that that poor big cat met its final end uh, at the hands of a, speed, of a, of a passing car. That didn't matter. The entire idea that there was a cougar, a mountain lion on the prowl, was enough to capture the attention of my children. And in a sense, that's exactly how it should be spiritually. Tonight, we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter says... Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, he's on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour. Now, the question, I guess, just in the word picture I'm trying to describe for you, is whether anything about your daily spiritual life is akin to my children being aware that a cougar was on the prowl. The admonition of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit is, you be sober, you be vigilant, because the reality is that there is a lion on the prowl, and not just is he miles and miles away in the Lowry Hill neighborhood, as I told my kids, God, he's way far away from here. He's looking to devour you. You! Not some anonymous person halfway across the world that you'll never see or think about again. You! So be sober. And be vigilant. As I was thinking about this message this week, there was a quote that was coming into my head. And I was doing some research to try to figure out where it came from. Some of you may have heard this quote, or something like it, the devil's greatest trick, or the greatest trick the devil ever pulled, was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I dug around and tried to figure out where exactly, I had heard it before, and, and, and it had become popularized in a mid-1990s movie, and it turns out it appears to have been written by a, a French poet named Charles Baudelaire. And Charles Baudelaire was, was a somewhat degenerate, uh, a poet. Um, he was a French poet. I don't know if that; those two things tend to be synonymous. Uh, but in any event, uh, he he was the one who had this phrase that the devil's greatest or cleverest trick. It's 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 translated in different ways. Was convincing the world he didn't exist. Now my sense is that if I were to ask all of us who are here tonight, uh, none of us would actually believe that the devil doesn't exist, and yet. And yet we should ask ourselves tonight is whether in a practical way we live as if he doesn't exist. We think, we act as if we do not have an adversary, a devil who is like a roaring lion, always on the prowl, seeking to devour and to destroy us. The title of the message tonight is Beware Your Enemy. Beware Your Enemy like to do tonight is I'd like to understand just a little bit more from this text about what our enemy is like and what he's looking to do, what we are called to do in response to the reality of this enemy, but then more than that, tying back to this morning's message, Looking at how Peter exemplified, lived this out in his own experience, he was so qualified to write these words to us. Because as we studied this morning from Mark chapter 4, in his greatest failure, he was the one who wasn't sober, who wasn't vigilant. And it was only by the grace of God that he himself was not devoured. So first, we're going to look at the enemy that's reflected here. Secondly, we're going to look at the essential that is held out for us. And third, we're going to look at a particular example that our author of this passage would himself know well. Let's start with the enemy. If we look here again in 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 8, you see this statement, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil... As a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. First here about this enemy is he's against you. He's against you. The word adversary is a word from the Greek that actually would be used in a legal sense. It's like saying he is your litigation opponent. He is the one standing against you in a court of law, pursuing you. It, when you remember that parable that Jesus gives of that importunate widow we called her who went goes to the unjust judge and says, Avenge me of mine adversary. Same word, same idea. There's someone who is resolutely opposed to you and to your interest. He is an adversary. But notice also, he's a devil. Your adversary, the Devil. So he's against you as an adversary. He's against you as a devil. Does anyone know what the word devil means here? It's, it's the Greek word diabolos. Does anyone know what that means? You know what it means? He's a slanderer. That's what the word devil means. He's a slanderer. In this picture, think of it in the book of Revelation when it's described as as the one who is the accuser of our brethren, which accused them before God day and night. Think about this picture. You have someone opposing you in a court of law, and the only testimony he gives is slanderous, false, deceptive testimony. That's what he is. That's literally who he is. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. And what he does is he slanders God to men. Hath God said you should not eat of the the fruit of the tree? Does God really love you? Does he really have your best interest in heart? Will his promises certainly be true for you? Are you sure you have been covered by the blood of Jesus? He slanders God to you. But guess what also he does? He slanders you to God. Think about Job. Ah, you see, I see your servant Job. But you know what? That's because you've blessed him. Take away what you've blessed him with, and he'll deny you to your face. And in fact, that's what Revelation says. He accuses us before God. Day and night. It's as if he is constantly approaching the court of heaven in some sense that we can't even possibly fathom, but similar to what he was doing with Job and saying, did you see your servant? He tripped up again. He stumbled again. She failed again. This is why First John 2 says that if any man sin, we have an advocate. The idea is a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Whenever Satan comes and slanders us before God and points out all our failures like a prosecuting attorney, Jesus is the one who stands up and says, but Father, I'm righteous, and this one's mine. He's covered by my blood. a wonderful thing. Not only that, though, the devil slanders man to man, or human to human. He slanders God to us, he slanders us before God, and he slanders us to each other. Do you know one of the ways that you most act devilishly is when you slander your brothers and sisters, when you give false reports, when you gossip about them, when you tear them down behind their back. What are you doing? You are being literally a devil. It's interesting that that same word diabolos in the Bible that's used for the devil, do you know that it's used on two different occasions in the New Testament to refer, and I'm not trying to be pointed with this, but it's the truth, to women. To women who will not be false accusers or will not be given to, to slander. Now, this is not just, of course, something that is prone only to women. It's something that all of us are to keep in mind. We are a devil when we slander a brother or sister or another human to another human. Because that is the essence of who the devil is. He is against you. Your adversary, the slanderer, the devil but notice not only is he against you he's on the prowl it says here your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walks about so the idea here he's walking about he's not stationary he's restless and he's always looking for food you can imagine if you've ever watched any documentary program they follow these a pride of lions as they're going through the the plains of Africa. And if you notice something, if you see something, um, these nature programs, they do a very good good job showing you that the fight of every animal is the same. Food. If you are a predator, you need food. And these prides of lions and other places, you'll see them covering large, large swaths of land looking for something to eat. And this is the devil. He is walking about. He is on the prowl. Now, notice the fact it says that he is like a roaring lion. I had to think about this a little bit, and, and I looked up something. Um, I, I, I checked in with my good friend, Ms. Google, and I asked, Why do lions roar? Why would a lion roar? Uh, and there were a couple answers that came up. One was because they're territorial, it's a show of strength, stay out of my land. Another apparently is to attract mates. But there was something that I saw, whether it's true or not, but I saw it reported, that one of the reasons old lions roar when they are missing their teeth or their teeth aren't as sharp or they don't have the energy, is to scare them. To send animals running to where the younger lions are who can actually capture them. And I thought, huh. Doesn't that sound kind of similar? Doesn't that sound similar how the devil may try to intimidate us to use power and force, a show of force, In fact, this book is written to suffering Christians. The whole idea of 1 Peter is over and over how to engage with suffering, how to endure under suffering. And it's noticed in verse 9, right after he says that the devil is seeking whom he may devour, he says, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions, literally sufferings, knowing that the same sufferings you're facing are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Everyone is suffering like you are. Peter's saying. And I think that's a picture here of this roaring lion. Sometimes this lion roars through suffering. He roars at us through affliction. And he is on the prowl. He's against you. He's on the prowl. And thirdly, he's looking to destroy you. He's looking whom he may devour. Now, what, what is the idea here? The idea truly is he's looking to consume you. Now, we should ask ourselves, how would the devil devour you? What is that which the devil would be after? He's not looking, of course, to eat your body in a physical sense like a lion would, devour your bones and skin and muscles. What's he trying to do? Well, we have an actually interesting parallel here in Luke chapter 22. Again, going back to this example of Peter, something that must have been on Peter's mind when he was writing this. Listen to these words and see if you can see what the connection is. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. So it's a different picture. Not a lion looking to devour you, but now Satan is looking to sift you out like wheat and separate the wheat from the chaff. Notice what he says, but I have prayed for thee that thy, what comes next? That thy faith fail not. What's Satan wanting? What did Satan want in that situation? He wanted Peter's faith to utterly fail, to be gone, to be destroyed. And do you know how how the devil wants to devour you? He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to utterly devour your faith. He wants to bring circumstances into your life such that you say, I give up following Christ. It's not worth it. It's too hard. It's too much. It's too serious. And he is looking for any strategy he can, not to attack your physical body, but to attack your spiritual life, which is rooted in your faith. I have prayed for thee, Jesus said that. Your faith fail not. This is why Ephesians 6, I think, says, Above all, taking the shield of faith. Why? Wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. What does Satan want? He's coming at your faith. And so hold up the shield of faith and put out his fiery darts. It's your faith that he's after. And if suffering will accomplish the destruction of your faith, he'll go with suffering. If success will destroy your faith, he'll try success. Whatever's necessary, he is after your faith. Because it's your faith that is the ground of your relationship with Jesus Christ. So you have an enemy. And and Peter is telling you, you have an enemy, it's real, he's on the prowl, he's against you, and he is looking to destroy you. Now look, secondly, at what I'm going to call the essential. Notice the command that he gives in light of the reality of this enemy. Be sober, be vigilant. Be sober, be vigilant. Now I'm going to switch the order here for a particular reason that we'll come to, but I want to start with that second one. Be vigilant. Be sober, be vigilant. What does it mean to be vigilant? What would be the opposite of being vigilant? Any ideas? If you weren't vigilant, you would be asleep. That would be one way to look at it. Don't sleep. It would have the idea of of being alert, of of never taking your eyes off the ball. And, and And now go back to this week. My children are walking out in Fridley, Minnesota, from my mother's house, walking out to the car. And where do you think their vigilance level is? In a dark night. Never mind that, as I said, the Lowry Hill neighborhood is miles and miles and miles and miles away. What kind of vigilance do you think my children have? Walking in a dark night out to the car. High state of vigilance. Be alert. Be vigilant don't be asleep. In other words, one of the things that the devil wants from you is to live as if he doesn't exist. What is the cleverest trick the devil ever pulled? In convincing men he doesn't exist. He wants you to live as if you don't need your head on a swivel. As if you don't need to be spiritually awake. And so Peter says, be vigilant. Be alert. Be But notice, secondly, he says, be sober. Be sober and be vigilant. This word sober is a word that would actually literally mean to abstain from wine. Don't be drunk. Or we would say, don't be intoxicated. Be sober as opposed to intoxicated. Now, you probably know, I don't need to tell you. What does alcohol do to you? Alcohol is a depressant. What it does is it literally depresses, it affects your central nervous system. And that, that is why you can tell you normally a drunk person, because of their inhibited reaction time. That's why we say don't drive drunk. That's why there are penalties for driving drunk. Because when you drive, and you are under the influence of alcohol, your senses are impaired. Your central nervous system cannot process information, and you are continually processing things a second or multiple seconds behind how you would if you were not intoxicated. Now think about this, what he's saying. Be sober... Have a mind that is free from anything that would impair your ability to process, your ability to react spiritually. Be sober in your mind. Be sober in your thinking. Do not be spiritually intoxicated. Now, think about, again, how these two things work together. You're going to have to have your mind free from intoxicants so that you can properly process and remain vigilant on the danger that is surrounding you at any particular given moment. That's the picture. Be sober and be vigilant. Now, why would we need this? Why would we need to be sober and vigilant based on the danger of this unseen enemy? And and I want to suggest to you, again, think about that picture of a roaring lion who is trying to deceive you, to, to convince you that an enemy that you sense is not the real enemy. That someone else or something else is the real enemy. Let me give you an example. I was doing some mediation, some some counseling, if you will, in a personal matter recently, and trying to help restore a relationship that had been suffering. And Tabitha very wisely said before I went, you need to remind them that they are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Aha. And I did. We talked about the fact that in this relationship, in which they have been prone to look at each other as the particular irritant, the enemy. That's not actually true. The Satan is the enemy who is loving it whenever they are at each other's throats. And I want you to think about that. Those of you who are married, what does the devil want? Nothing more than for you to be at each other's throats. Our marriage is God made to be united And to be intimate, in the sense that he made us one flesh, to be one. And what does the devil want? Nothing more than for us not to be united and never to pursue the kinds of emotional and spiritual and physical intimacy that God desires from Married couples to reflect his relationship with us. In fact, Scripture has this idea. Think about 1 Peter 3. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So think about that. What does the devil want? Nothing more. Your prayers to be hindered. And so what does he do? Don't treat your wife right. Don't don't give honor to her. Don't dwell with her in an understanding way. She's the problem. She's the enemy. And all the while, what's happening when we're listening to those lies? Our prayers are being hindered, and Satan's like, yes, exactly. Who's the enemy? Not your spouse. You have a common enemy who's doing everything in his power to bring you down and to make you spiritually uh, absolutely impotent. Another example, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Have you ever heard this verse? Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You heard that verse before? Did you contemplate what the context of that was? Have you stopped and thought what the device that Satan actually was, that Paul was identifying of Satan in that passage? It was the story of the man who had been church-disciplined in uh, in 1 Corinthians. They needed to put this guy out of the church and and deliver him over to Satan for the the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved. What happened? Well, Paul says to them in 2 Corinthians 2, this guy, I'm telling you to forgive him. I'm telling you to comfort him. I'm telling you to confirm your love toward him. Why? Why? Because if you don't do that, Satan might get an advantage of us. Do you know, friends, when you don't forgive someone who has repented and confessed their sin to you, and you, can we even say, comforted or confirmed your love to that person, Satan's like, ha, 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 here's my advantage. Checkmate me. Why? Why? Because we are not ignorant of his devices. Our relationships are the fabric of our spiritual lives. They are what God has made, not only for our joy and our contentment and for our peace, but also to reflect an example of him to our world, to our families, to our churches. And when we are at odds with one another, Satan wins. So what's he going to do? He's going to try to convince you that there's another enemy. And you don't have to be sober and be vigilant about him. Someone else is attracting your attention. Friends, let's not be ignorant of his devices. And I just gave one example. Just one example of relationships. And we could just go by uh, example after example. Those that have committed themselves in some ways inappropriately as Christians, to the political realm or to uh, to the business realm or to other realms and they're fighting all these human enemies over and over and resorting to unbiblical and uncharitable tactics and all the while, Satan says, "Uh uh-huh, they're not seeing the real enemy. My roar has distracted them from the reality of who I am and the devices that I am seeking against them. I could give example after example, but let me just pause here. Beware. Beware. Your enemy is seeking to convince you that it's some other human enemy, some other human person or situation that is the real problem. And he's hoping you'll forget that all the while he is gaining an advantage of you. Be sober, be vigilant. But one more thing. Notice what he says. Seeking whom may, may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. Not only do, or do we must be, be alert, not only must we be aware, we must be active. He says resist. Resist steadfast in the faith. Isn't this interesting? What is the devil after? He's after your faith. And so what does God say? Resist him in the faith. In the faith. Stand strong in your faith, in what you believe about who God is and what He's done for you in Jesus Christ. Isn't it a wonderful thing that Jesus is praying for you? That just like He was praying for Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. He's praying for you now. I love what Robert Murray McShane says—that old, uh, that old Scottish pastor. He says, "If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies." Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He's praying for you. And it's your faith that you are to resist him wherever he appears. Oh, friends, how important it is that in all of our relationships and in all of our different situations in life, our faith is rooted in what is revealed in the word of God in seeking to apply it and trust it no matter what kind of unbelief the devil would seek to put in our way. So notice, what is the enemy? The devil. He is after you. He's a slanderer. He's seeking to devour you by destroying your faith. The essential is that you must be alert. You must be aware. You must be active in resisting him. And finally, let's look at what I'm going to call the example. The example. I love the connection here between what Peter describes in this passage and what he himself lived out. And if you weren't here this morning or you were in a Sunday school class or other ministry and not able to hear it, perhaps you'll have a chance to go back this week and fill in some of the pieces. But let's just walk through that again very briefly. On that last night, was Peter alert to the spiritual danger he was? Was he vigilant? No, he wasn't. And how do we know that? Well, again, you could go back to Mark chapter 14. And Jesus says, watch out. All of you are going, to be, are going to be offended of me this night. And what does Peter say? No. Though all shall be offended, yet not I. And what did Jesus say to him? Peter, this night, before the cock crows, the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And what does he say? Though everyone could deny you, I, I, not I, I would go to death with you. Was he vigilant? Was he alert? No. What was he blinded by? He was blinded by his pride. He was blinded by his self-confidence. And as I said this morning, and I'll repeat again, the devil wants nothing more than to deceive you with a story about yourself that isn't true. He wants nothing more than that. To some of us, he's saying, "You're, you're doing great. You could never fall in that area. Other people may have that weakness, but not you. And you'll not be vigilant. To other ones of us, he comes with another lie. You could never succeed. You're hopeless. You're a failure. You'll never be able to resist my advances. And what do you do? It's a story you believe about yourself, about your place in the world, about your central part in the story of all that is around us. And that, for Peter, that lie was, I think, about his pride and his sufficiency. Is it any wonder that in verse 6, he says here, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time? I don't think so. Peter, to be vigilant, needed to humble himself under the mighty hand of God and listen to God's word to him. Peter, you're not as strong as you think. You're not the rock that you believe yourself to be. You still have Simon in there, not just Peter. Okay, so was he vigilant? No. And friends, your vigilance in your spiritual life, may be blinded by your own kind of lie, your own kind of story that you have told yourself and believe to be true, and it's causing you not to be always with your head on a swivel looking for how the devil may be seeking to attack you. Secondly, was he aware? Was Peter aware? Was he alert? No. Was he aware or was he intoxicated? Spiritually. He was intoxicated. And, and what was he intoxicated by? You remember Jesus coming to him and saying when they were in the garden, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. And Peter was sleeping. And as, if you're not going to be a stranger to this, if you've been a part of our services in the morning, what was Peter sleeping? Why was Peter sleeping? Because he was, what? Tired, yeah, tired, but what else? Sad. Luke makes clear that Peter and the other disciples were sleeping for sorrow. What were they sad about? They were sad undoubtedly because they had heard Jesus saying that he was going to die. Perhaps they had realized already the plan that Judas had for them. And this made them sad. They were recognizing that something was about to change. And this, their anxiety made them utterly exhausted and ready to fall asleep. And what does Jesus say? Boys, there's spiritual danger. Wake up. Don't be intoxicated. Here's the point that I just want to make very simply. It was something very natural. It was their anxiety. It was their sadness that made them drunk. And the point here that we should be remindful, that we should be mindful of is that there may be very natural things that are going to make you spiritually intoxicated. I mean natural things like sadness. Natural things like anxiety. Natural things like fear and worry about what's coming in the days ahead. Natural things like Where's my next paycheck going to come from? Do I have enough for retirement? Is everything going to work out with my family? Are my kids going to be okay? What's going on with my marriage? Your natural reactions that seem to us as things we can often excuse. Well, that's just is who I am. It's the way I'm made. I know I struggle with it. No. No. What's that going to leave us? Intoxicated. Unable to react to the attacks, the prowling of the devil around us? What else can make us intoxicated? Well, look at our entertainment world today. Look at all the opportunities we have to literally drug ourselves with movies, television shows, um, other forms of entertainment that leave us utterly unprepared to face the attacks of the devil because we are drunk. We are intoxicated. Is it any wonder... Notice verse 7 here in 1st Peter chapter 7 or I'm 1st Peter chapter 5 casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. What did Peter need to do that night in the garden? He needed to cast all his care upon God and watch and pray. He's identifying two things here that were absolutely a root cause of his greatest failing pride humble yourselves anxiety of sorrow and care cast all your care upon him for he careth for you and the very next verse be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil like a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour friends what's necessary for peter is necessary for us we need to identify what might cause us not to be alert? What kinds of areas, what are our own spiritual areas that might cause us not to be on the lookout for our enemy? And we need to identify the kinds of things that would leave us intoxicated, not able to discern the things in which he is working against us at the time. And then what about be active? Did Peter remain active in his faith? No, he didn't. He didn't stand and fight. He crumbled in his own self-confidence. You see, this wonderful example, I think, is a reflection for us of a couple things. One, if it happened to the great apostle, the one who spent years, three and a half years with Jesus in close personal fellowship, it can happen to you. Be sober. Be vigilant this week. But you know, it says one other thing too. Because the one who is writing this is the one who experienced the failure. And he's the one who stands as an example that your greatest protection against being devoured is ultimately the one who restored Peter in the midst of his failing. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, when, not if, you are, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. And with a look of compassion right after, Jesus, after Peter had failed him, with a personal meeting after Jesus had been raised again from the dead, and with his own public restoration of Peter in John chapter uh, 21, I think it is, Jesus was the one who, in the end, was holding on to Peter and holding on to his faith to ensure that he would not be devoured. Ultimately, this story of faith is one of Jesus' protection as his high priest, protecting him from the attacks of the devil. Notice how this ends in verse, after verse 9. He says, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, right in that devil's mouth, if you will, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember my children this week. Remember the prospect of sobriety and vigilance at the news of a mountain lion in the neighborhood. And then this week, let's make sure that we exercise a similar kind of attitude toward our great enemy, recognizing that our gracious Savior will be standing alongside to defend us.